0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Tinseltown, the stars are losing their she, or at least a bit of earning power the rise of streaming and the box office pull of franchises is changing the film business. Though some stars may grumble, Hollywood's lesser lights are happy. And we examine the curious case of the California condor. Two of these huge, rare birds manage to hatch chicks without going through the, um, usual procedure. first, COP26, the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, is coming to an end. For two weeks, world leaders and their representatives have been negotiating and making pledges. But the final text, which everyone will put their names to, and which will measure their ambition in tackling climate change, is still being wrangled over. Yesterday, the President of COP26, Alok Sharma, urged countries to build on the Paris Agreement of 2015, which aimed to keep global warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. An ambitious agreement is one that keeps 1.5 within reach. That is what uh, I have said right from the start of taking on this role. uh, And that is what we continue to push for, an ambitious outcome at COP26. Frankly, that's what the world deserves but some fear too little progress will be made to avert disaster.
2: Today is meant to be the last official day of COP. 200 countries are now trying really hard to negotiate a deal that everyone can agree on. We've had an awful lot of talking, but now everything's really getting down to the nitty-gritty and the brass tacks of what the final decision text will be.
1: Rachel Dobbs covers climate change for The Economist and is in Glasgow for COP26.
2: And there is... A lot of uncertainty over whether that will be a high ambition decision or whether that will be full of compromises and will not have really moved stuff forward from the Paris Agreement.
1: What do we know about the text that they're trying to agree on? How ambitious is it?
2: So we've just had a draft version of the decision text through. This is the second draft. We had the first one earlier in the week. There are areas in which it is quite ambitious. For example, it includes an encouragement to countries to phase out coal and fossil fuel subsidies, which sounds like it shouldn't be a big deal, but that is the first time that fossil fuels, which are the main driver of climate change, have ever been mentioned in a UN negotiating text. There are other areas where the draft text is still quite ambitious. For example, it is trying to double adaptation finance for developing countries, which is something that they have been pushing very hard for. It includes a financial facility for something that's called loss and damage financing, which is essentially reimbursing countries that are already feeling the effects of climate change for the damage that they have already incurred. Uh, There are areas that there's still a lot of uncertainty over, including what the climate financing goal for post-2025 should be and how much money rich countries should be giving poor ones going forward and what mechanisms that should be provided under. How likely is that ambitious outcome? It's worth noting here that the talks were meant to conclude at 6pm today, and that is almost definitely not going to happen. There's an awful lot of negotiating still to do. And it is actually very difficult for us to tell at this point how likely the high ambition outcome is versus the low ambition outcome. There are some indications that certain ambitious parts of the text are making their way through. For example, the fossil fuel wording remained from the previous draft of this one, which is actually quite of a surprise because fossil fuel-producing countries are presumably going to be pushing quite hard against that. But there is still an awful lot to do, and all of those talks will happen over the next 24 to 48 hours, depending on how long this thing runs, and they will be done behind closed doors. So it's really difficult for us to know.
1: Rachel, it's been a busy couple of weeks with a lot to keep track of. What have been the big moments so far?
2: Probably the biggest and most notable moment was a surprise announcement on Wednesday night. There had been rumours circulating all day that there was going to be some kind of press conference between America and China. We were then all called into a room and actually what happened is that China came on first, made an announcement. Then John Kerry for America came on.
0: This declaration
2: is a step ...that we can build on. And it was a declaration that the two countries were going to work together... ...on enhanced climate action over the next decade. And what were the details of that commitment? So the declaration was quite long on promises but short on details. But it essentially committed both countries to work together... ...on a range of policies to try and decarbonise over the next decade. So that includes policies to produce energy without the use of carbon efforts to ban illegal deforestation, efforts and efforts to reduce methane emissions. The most significant thing about that announcement is not, though, what it contained, but just that it exists at all, because collaboration on climate action between China and America, who are two of the biggest emitters in the world, was essentially torpedoed over Donald Trump, and this shows that it's coming back.
1: Alongside the summit, we've seen a lot of impassioned protests. Have those voices been heard?
2: So I think the protesters would say that their voices are absolutely not being heard by the leaders inside the summit and there have been problems with representation. There were quite a lot of youth activists who were invited, who were then not able to be in the rooms where negotiations happened because of COVID and other rules. Um, there has definitely been awareness and a sense of the high emotion and the protests happening outside, although it's obviously very hard to quantify how that translates into any of the decisions that are being made. Barack Obama did speak earlier in the week... We
1: will not have more ambitious climate plans
2: coming out of governments unless governments feel some pressure from voters. And very much acknowledge the youth presence and encourage protesters to vote and move that into the political process, as well as just sort of taking to the streets.
1: Now that it's almost over, going into the weekend, what's your sense of whether it's likely to have a successful outcome?
2: It's just really difficult to say uh, what success means for this COP is a complicated matter. One of the objectives here was to work out ways to implement the Paris Agreement and make sure that countries are achieving the things that they need to achieve. There's also obviously a sense that countries really need to increase what they're doing to meet those goals and much more rapidly cut emissions. And so some of the things that will make that possible, like, for example, countries having to submit new, more frequent plans that outline their climate action. All of these things are still in play. We will really just not know until negotiations have concluded over the next 24 hours.
1: Rachel, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Patrick. In the final edition of our sister podcast, To a Lesser Degree, out this Monday, the team will be digesting what does and doesn't get agreed on at the Climate Summit COP26. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcarecom loss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcarecom loss. George, you and George, George, you and Ben, and guys, right? When George Clooney and Ben Affleck walk the red carpet, the cameras go wild. Their household names for a reason, namely their star power. Their names have turned fame into fortune, both for themselves and for the studios that backed the movies they starred in. But in the advent of streaming, their box office appeal isn't what it used to be. Just look at what's happening later today. Happy Disney Plus Day! Happy Disney, Happy Disney, Disney, Disney Plus Day! Disney Plus! Disney, Disney Plus, Disney Disney Plus Day. Day! Disney Plus Day! Disney is set to announce its latest commissioning blitz with new entries in the Marvel and Star Wars sagas. You're more likely to remember the characters in those series than the stars in the roles. And Disney isn't alone. Increasingly, streaming services are flipping the script on the economics of being an A-lister.
3: Some of Hollywood's biggest stars are losing their sparkle. Tom
1: Wainwright is The Economist's media editor.
3: It seems that the reason that they're getting paid less than they used to is that streaming has really changed the economics of talent in Hollywood. How has it changed the economics, Tom? Well, you might have seen over the summer that Scarlett Johansson, who's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, sued Disney, saying that they'd underpaid her for her role in Black Widow.
0: Before I was an
2: Avenger, I made mistakes.
3: And what was going on there was that this movie, which she had always assumed would have a theatrical-only run, went to streaming at the same time, went to Disney+. And that was partly because of the pandemic, obviously. But services like Disney+, and Netflix, and Amazon Prime Video, and all the rest of them didn't exist when some of these contracts were arranged. And so stars whose compensation previously was tied to a share of box office profits are wondering what this means now if if their movies go straight to streaming or, or are released at the same time at the home that's going to eat into box office receipts and therefore their paychecks and so a lot of them are calling up their lawyers and saying look we need to renegotiate these contracts can you give me an example of what a contract would have been like before streaming well, it used to be that the common thing for big actors or star writers or producers was that they'd get paid a, a fee up front, but then they get, in addition to that, what people called a back-end deal, which meant a share of profits from that show or that movie In future. And that's changing now. It's more common now that people are getting a bigger payment up front, which for most people, you know, is, is a good thing. But the downside is that they're not getting that kind of profit share arrangement further down the line. And that's because a lot of these projects which go straight to streaming just don't have the same kind of revenue streams down the line. And for many actors, this is a good thing. You know, previously, the deals were a bit like being given a lottery ticket. If your film or your TV series did incredibly well, used to, to make amazing money. People who devised shows like Friends or Frasier, that kind of thing, were making sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. But those kinds of deals have gone, and in, instead people are getting paid more to begin with, but they lose out on the opportunity to really, really strike gold if, if their show does well.
1: Are income streams less variable then? And in that case, some people must be very happy about that.
3: One lawyer said to me that the upshot of the new contract is that success now is being under and failure is being over And Sadly, you know, that the way that Hollywood works is that there are more flops than hits. And so for most people, getting a slightly higher payment up front and less in the event of a massive success is, is probably a good thing. Um, for most actors and most writers... The streamers have come along and increased demand for production and they're getting paid more than they used to be. The people who are losing out are the kind of megastars. So the actors who previously could command a profit participation deal where they might in the past have made 100 million plus from a really successful movie, or the writers or the showrunners who devise big, big hits, they're getting paid much, much less than they used to be. So A kind of equality, in a way, is coming to Hollywood. The actors are getting paid more for the the flops, (laughs) uh, but less for the the mega hits. And the studios overall, I think, are paying out less, which is why they're keen on this new kind of arrangement.
1: And besides the technological change at the rise of streaming, are there other factors that have tipped the balance against the star. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole star system that
3: the studios set up a 100 years ago or so really was a project that was designed to de-risk the business of making a movie. I mean, it's a really expensive gamble you're making if you put together a potential blockbuster. And if you pay an actor who has an established following to be in your movie, then it means that he or she is bringing, you hope, a kind of guaranteed audience along, which lowers the risk that your film's going to be a total disaster at the box office. But these days, studios are taking a slightly different approach. For one thing, they're using intellectual property more as a way of de-risking their movies than star power. So look at Disney, which is by far the most successful studio at the box office. Its biggest hits now mostly rely on intellectual property. They own the Star Wars franchise, they own the Marvel franchise, and they still try and get famous actors, but the success of a Marvel film doesn't completely hinge on who's in it, really. It's more about the intellectual property. So that's one thing that's diminished star power.
1: And is there anything else that's knocked the likes of poor George
3: Clooney and Ben Affleck down a peg? The other thing I think is that the streamers, and particularly Netflix, are taking a slightly different approach. It's not that they're gambling huge amounts on a handful of projects in the way that studios used to in, in the days when it was all about the box office. Netflix instead commissions loads of stuff. It's a kind of scattergun approach to content commissioning. And it lets its algorithm decide, lets its consumers decide via the algorithm what's going to be a hit. So it's different. You know, they're commissioning loads of stuff which may or may not succeed. And they're finding that the things that do really well often are the things that don't include stars. So look at Squid Game as an obvious example. No one in that that most people in the West had previously heard of, and yet it's been their most successful ever show. So it seems that streamers are relying less on stars for that reason as well. They're just commissioning tons and tons of stuff and kind of seeing what works. And more and more, Tom this is going to affect the content we see yeah that's right and it means that the question of who are going to be the stars of tomorrow really isn't one that's going to be answered by hollywood agents and casting directors it's going to be answered instead
1: by the algorithm tom thank you very much for joining us thank you The California condor is the largest flying bird in North America. On its 10-foot wingspan, it can soar to 15,000 feet, almost half as high as a commercial airline. It can live as long as 60 years. Few animals have come closer to extinction and survived. By 1982, just 22 remained. But a captive breeding program, based in San Diego, has been an astonishing success. Now, 329 condors are flying freely in North America. Another 175 live in zoos. But in running that program, one of the San Diego team noticed something
0: rather odd. California condors are among the most closely monitored animals on the planet because they're just so incredibly rare. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. The geneticist at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, Oliver Ryder, who has been monitoring them very closely, noticed that two condors were not born through any sort of union with a male. They are essentially virgin births. No involvement from males,
1: virgin births. Matt, how does that work?
0: When eggs are laid, they're usually fertilized by the sperm of males. But in these cases, one of the cells in the female behaved like a sperm infused with the Other cells in the egg and effectively fertilize them. It's called parthogenesis, which comes from the Greek word virgin birth. And so the researchers, when they discovered it, were surprised, not because we haven't seen parthogenesis before. We know it happens in the wild in some snakes. We've even seen it in Komodo dragons in captivity. But it's rare in birds. We know it happens in domestic turkeys, for example, when the female turkeys are denied access to a male. We've never seen this before where there were males around that the females could breed with and they chose, instead of breeding with the male, to have a parthenogenic egg. So in the case of the California condors, there were males around then. This wasn't the only option. Yeah, I mean, not only were there males around, but with one of these females that engaged in the parthenogenic egg laying, she had bred with the male 23 times before and had 23 chicks with him. So it's not like she didn't like the guy. The same was true at slightly lesser numbers for the other female who engaged in this. So this was something that happened seemingly spontaneously, even in the presence of males.
1: And what about the chicks? How did they fare once they'd hatched?
0: Unfortunately, the chicks did not do well in either case. They were born, which is a big deal because a lot of parthenogenic eggs that we see in birds never hatch. Moreover, lots of them die very early on in their years. In this case, one of them died at about age two, and another died at about age seven. The one that died at age two had been released into the wilds of California near Big Sur State Park, and it had been malnourished at the time that it died. As for the other, it lived for nearly eight years in captivity, and it was part of the captive breeding program, it never bred with the female that it was partnered with, and it succumbs to complications from a foot injury that it suffered. But still, it's not like it hatched and then died. These birds did develop, but just didn't do particularly well. Did these
1: birds help the researchers get any idea of how common parthenogenesis is in
0: California condors? It doesn't shed light on how common this actually occurs in the wild because in this case, both of the virgin births came from birds that were kept in captivity. Admittedly, one was released later on. It's very, very hard for us to know whether or not birds that are hatched in the wild are parthenogenic because you have to have genetic information on the parents and you have to have genetic information on the young. And the only way you can do that is by collecting blood samples from all these birds. So it's really, really tricky to do that. But it raises questions about whether or not we would see this more often in the wild if wild birds were more closely monitored. If it is happening more widely in the wild, then not only do the textbooks need to be rewritten, but a lot of research needs to be done in understanding why that would be the case.
1: Matt, thanks very much for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Patrick.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittelson and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Duncan Barber, Sam Colbert, and Sam Westren. Our producer is Stevie Hertz, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Osundairo. With extra production help this week from John Joe Devlin and Emily Elias. Jason Palmer will be back on Monday.